Today uh, is the beginning, everybody say the beginning, where I start dealing with a lot of the practical stuff to do with God's grace and how to live in his grace and uh, some of the understanding we have to have in order to be able to do it. And uh, this morning, I want to start with a conversation I had with Lauren Godfrey and Mark Redka. You guys may not know Mark, but Mark and Sarah uh, were part of this church for many years. They now live in Kelowna, and uh, they moved out to Calgary, and then now they're in Kelowna. Mark's a contractor, and so I was sitting in the Quinney restaurant. Does everybody know where that is? You know, I'm sure everybody goes there every week. Uh, But the old Quinney restaurant in the plaza up in the corner of Canafton, and uh, what's that one going across this way? College, that's right. So up in the plaza there. And uh, we're, <clears throat> we're having lunch together, we're chatting away, and Mark was talking about, you know, getting good deals on properties and buying properties and then renovating them and flipping them. And, and Mark said, uh, he said, you know, he said at the end of the day, he said, it's, it's, it's all about who you know to get these property deals, right? And, uh, and I looked at the two of them and I said, you know, I said, that's exactly like the gospel. You know, because pastors have to find an opportunity to preach something every chance you get, right? So when the opportunity, you know, presents itself, you have to walk through that door. And they kind of looked at me like this, and I said, think about it. I said, with the gospel, I said, it also is not what you know, it's who you know. And then also, yeah, I see what you mean. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And, uh, you know, that's basically the bottom line of the gospel. It's all about who, everybody say who, who you know, right? Do you know Jesus or not? Because it doesn't matter all the things that you may know about God, right? It's whether you actually know him. And so a lot of times we can get puffed up with knowledge, Uh, You know, we read lots of books, uh, you know, we attend seminars and all those things, and we know so much about so much stuff, and uh, yet do we really know him? Everybody know what the definition of an expert is? My dad taught me this one a long time ago. He said, "It's, it's somebody who studies more and more about less and less until they know all there is to know about nothing. That's not bad, eh? You know, and sometimes we got a whole world full of experts, people that know more and more about less and less, and then the reality is, how much do we really know about life, right? And the truth of the matter is, you can be an expert on banking and finance, you can be an expert on shipping and transportation, right? You can be an expert on construction and building, you can be an expert on computer technology and all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, all that knowledge is of nothing if you actually don't know Jesus, right? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, and uh, we're going to talk about that revelatory truth, and we're going to give you some example from Scripture of exactly what we're talking about here today. First thing you need to understand is that the Pharisees, everybody say Pharisees, the Pharisees knew all about God, and they were a great picture of us for our world today. Now, how many know who the Pharisees were? Let me see your hands. All right, not bad. About a third of the people know who the Pharisees were. Well, you've probably, how many have heard of them? You've heard that word before. All right, so if you've read the, the Gospels, you've heard the word Pharisees talked about before. 
They were a group of Jewish uh, leaders that came into prominence during what's called the silent years. Anybody know what the silent years are? Oh, I got one hand, two hands, three hands, four or five. Silent years are that 400 years of history between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. All right, It's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Malachi penned his last a prophetic word to when Jesus came on the scene, and we have the record starting in Matthew. It was about 400 B.C. when uh, Malachi wrote, and they're called the silent years because there was no prophetic voice during that time. There was no, nothing that we have record of. There's nothing in Scripture. There was nothing being said for about 400 years. Now, how many know 400 years is a long time? You know, we, we, you know, we forget. We, we go from Malachi to Matthew and we flip one page and we're there. But that's 400 years of history. 400 years. You know, we get worried if we haven't got a fresh word from God in a week. Right? Can imagine being a people, the Jewish people, you haven't had a fresh word in 400 years. For 400 years, you've been waiting for God to speak. For 400 years, you've been waiting for things to change. For 400 years... It seems like God's silent. But you know, in the silence, when, when sometimes when we don't hear God speaking, how many know it's, it's very tempting to want to fill it in with your own stuff? Right? Right? Come on. You can be a little honest with me here this morning. You know? How many have done it as a parent? You know, and instead of praying about how to discipline that child, you just come up with your own strategies, right? Anybody ever do that before? <laughs> come on, sure you have. You know, uh, in all kinds of circumstances in life, when, you know, we, we, we haven't sought the Lord, we haven't heard anything from him, we tend to find some way to fill the hole ourselves. Historically, that's exactly what the Jewish people did. In the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, you know, at the end of Malachi, we've got prophets and we've got priests and we've got kings, right? That's it. That's it. Now you come into Matthew, and all of a sudden you've got Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. You never even heard of those guys in the Old Testament. Right? They weren't there. It, only, it took 400 years, but in the 400 years, the Jews managed to fill the void with religion. See how that works? I don't know what I'm talking about this morning. They did it, and they did it well. So now you've got these three guys, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And you think, what in the world were they? Well, glad you asked. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were salesmen of the law. Everybody say salesmen. They were marketers in the law, right? And they were the ones who were made sure that in those years in which it seemed that God was silent, they were going to make sure everybody knew what the law said, okay? Now, the Sadducees were pretty literalist. So they basically stuck to what it said. But the Pharisees, <laughs> no, 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 no. The Pharisees, they, they like to add stuff. All right? They added stuff. They added lots of stuff, you know? So you find something in the law, the Pharisees had added something, their own interpretation to it, and they'd added a whole mess of other stuff on it and made it ten times as hard to follow as it was in the first place. How many know just keeping the Ten Commandments is tough? Right? Anybody here ever lie? Even once in your life? The ones without your hands raised, you're lying right now. <laughs> so you've already been caught. All right? Uh, anybody, anybody here had, ever had a, a murderous thought? Uh, I know as parenting, I did several times, you know? 
<laughs> you know, the reality is that, that, that you know, and the, on top of the Ten Commandments, there was all kinds of other things that were given to us in the book of Leviticus. But the Pharisees managed to make it even more complicated. They added stuff in there, one after another after another. I mean, it became impossible to follow or to keep all the rules the Pharisees had created, and they had created very, very, very many. <clears throat> the final group, the Essenes, you've probably never heard of the Essenes, right? Have you even noticed that word in Scripture? Kind of, or are you one of those people, you see a word, and you go, I don't know what that means, just keep on going, right? Uh, well, how many are like that? When I, when I read a book, though, and I come against, up against a word, I don't know what the word means. That's why I like my Kindle. All you got to do is tap on the word, instantly, boop. The meaning pops up. I love that. You know, in the old days when you read books on paper, you had to go get this thing called a dictionary, and you actually had to flip through and look the word up. Some of you young people, do you know what a dictionary is? Yeah, yeah. they were big, thick books. that usually had nice hard covers, and, you know, you had to flip through and find that actual word. Well, you know, now on your Kindle, you just go, and there it is, and it tells you what it means. Well, the Essenes are one of those groups that most people haven't heard of, but you may have heard of something they're famous for, and that's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many have ever heard of those? So in a place called Kuram, in, uh, just outside of Jerusalem, they found archaeologists in the 1960s, I think it was, did a dig, and they found in this dig uh, a bunch of scrolls carefully hand-preserved and written by the Essenes. You see, the Essenes weren't like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but they were, they were concerned only with the text. And they felt it was their job and their calling from God to preserve the text. And so they spent all day, everybody say all day. And all they did was hand-write over and over again the, uh, the books of the Old Testament on parchments that they rolled up and then they, they would take them and they would store them in these clay jars and then they would shelve them. And they found a dig outside Jerusalem and when they opened those clay jars, they found hundreds of these jars and hundreds of scrolls beautifully preserved. And today there's a museum in Jerusalem you can go to and the top of the roof is shaped like one of the ends of the jars that the scrolls came in. It's pretty cool. And when you go in there, it's open in the middle, and there's glass windows all the way around the outside, 360 degrees inside there. And you walk up to the window, and you push a button, and all of a sudden the lights come on for a few minutes, and you can read the text. And then they go out because both light and air and everything else deteriorates the, the scrolls. And they're, they're kept in perfect, humid environments on, in these, on behind these glasses. Now, what's significant about that? Well, what's significant is that they've been able to, to date these, uh, some of these scrolls as being well, well older than 400 B.C. Some of them uh, go back uh, quite a, a long while. And the reality is, is that they found parse, uh, portions of entire texts of, of books in the Bible. They found all of Isaiah 50 right through to 57, all the prophecies about Christ, and they predate Christ. These scrolls have been found where it talks about, you know, he was, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. They found these texts, and these actual texts, they know. Everybody say no. no. They know that they're older than Jesus. So those who want to diss the Bible and say, well, those things were written, those prophecies are so accurate because somebody wrote them after Jesus was born. Hogwash. 
And so the Essenes have helped us a lot, even though the reason they did it is they had this religious notion that by doing this, that God would love them, that their place was secure, because after all, I'm doing what God has called me to do. Now, together, these three, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, form the group that Jesus often referred to as the teachers of the law. Everybody say, teachers of the law. And uh, the one thing that they all had in common was their service in the interpretation, the preservation, the application of the law of God to his people. And each one of them made it their life pursuit to study God's laws, and yet, everybody say yet, they didn't know God. You see, they are proof that it's possible to spend your whole life reading about God and not know God. Well, how do you know they didn't know God? Because of the way Jesus spoke to them when he came to earth. When Jesus came, his most scathing judgments were reserved for these teachers of the law. If you read through uh, the New Testament, Jesus did not have many nice things to say to these gentlemen. He called them vipers, snakes in the grass, whitewashed tombs. Am I missing anything here? Uh, you know, as you read through these people, he said, you make burdens and weights and place them upon people. Hello? Jesus was scathing to these guys. He was scathing to them. He was, he was angry with them. Why? Because they created in the 400 years, they managed to get rid of the priesthood, to get rid of, of you know, the, the, uh, the prophets and replace them with these religious dudes who were absolutely terrible, adding so much weight to people's lives. And all you got to do is read chapter, Matthew chapter 23. If you want a, a homework assignment when you leave today, go read Matthew chapter 23. Everybody say Matthew 23. And you're going to read in there what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. These people knew the rules but they seem to have missed the one who made the rules. They, they knew the law, but they didn't know the one who wrote the law, who was the foundation of the law. They were obsessed with rules. Jesus was concerned with God's love. The Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, they rejected sinners. Jesus seeks them out, right? Jesus went out of his way to encounter them, to meet them. Jesus depicted the Pharisees as self-righteous followers and reserved his, his worst attacks for them. And in fact, to this day, even if you don't know biblically what a Pharisee is, everybody knows the term because we even use it in our English language for anybody who's a hypocrite, right? We say, oh, you're so pharisaical or you're just a Pharisee, right? Maybe you don't, but the term is there. I mean, you can look it up in the dictionary. It recognizes it as a term to be applied to somebody who's operating as a hypocrite today. And so today, there's many theologians and teachers and even pastors who know a lot about God. They've studied in seminaries. They've written research papers, etc., but they still don't know God. They still don't know him. Anybody ever heard of Dan Brown? You ever read the Da Vinci Code? Saw the movie? Uh, Angels and Demons. What was the other one that the same character was in? There's three of them. I can't remember. What's that? Uh, that's no that's not by him but you know Tom Hanks character they made three movies with him but anyway it doesn't matter 
Dan Brown did a lot of re research for his books, and he had a lot of interesting stuff in there. Now, about, you know, 80% of was sure and utter nonsense. But the reality is he made all this study about all this history stuff about the Catholic Church and about, uh, you know, the, all of the trappings around that. And somehow in the midst of it all, he still missed Jesus. I mean, he did tons of research to come up with uh, his, his books, and he still missed Jesus. He still missed him. You see, it's possible to spend all that time looking and looking and looking and still miss the person that's behind it all. And that happens to us over and over and over again. You may have read the Christmas story. You may have be here this morning and you, you got a vague idea about what Easter is about. But do you know him? Do you know Jesus? He wants you to know him. He wants to have a relationship with you that's personal, that you can talk to him, that he can talk to you. No, that just makes us schizophrenic, <laughs> hearing voices. Well, no, there's one voice you're allowed to hear. If you hear multiple voices, yeah, you might want to go see your doctor, but, you know, but if you're hearing Jesus, that's okay. And sometimes you'll hear him through the word. Sometimes some people hear him as an audible voice. Sometimes it's just a prompting, you know, to, to do this or to do that. Mark recently, you know, had an experience where God brought to his mind his friend that he, went, that he worked with in, in Seattle. And God spoke to him about it. And so he just called the guy up out of the blue. He just said, I was thinking about you. The guy lives in Texas now. And, and he said, I was, you know, and he said, I just was concerned about you. And, and just God was asking me to pray for you. And he said, well, you know, I didn't think I really needed the prayer. But now that you call, I realize I do. And so Mark got on a plane and flew down to Texas to be with him. Well, that was just coincidence. Could be. Could be God speaking to you too, right? If we'll listen, he still speaks. If you'll listen, God still speaks. <clears throat> My favorite buddy, C.S. Lewis. He said, the old man who sits in the back pew of the church in his rubber boots and humbly stands amazed at his Savior's love for him knows God far better than a theologian who smugly awaits the applause of his peers after he has finished giving a lecture on grace. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> oh, man, that is a mouthful right there, but it is so true, so true. Now, how about this one? He said, the greatest theologian in the world who has not personally encountered Jesus does not know him as well as a child who has a personal experience. And then I love this. An electric eel knows electricity better than all the electrical engineers in the world. Because <laughs> 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 ah, it's one thing to study electricity. It's another thing to have experienced it. Now, I've done both. I have... <laughs> both studied electricity and I have experienced electricity. I was standing in the foyer. We used to have our, our, our giving thing wasn't over on the, the, the cupboard here. The entrance, it used to be uh, up against the glass entrance that we had. How many remember the glass entrance here? And so up against, we had this pole called a jiffy pole. It's a metal pole that went down from top to bottom. You could hide wiring in it, right? And so I was wiring that sucker up. I'm on top of a 12-foot ladder, I'm standing up there, and, uh, you know, and I know, like, when you're playing with the, the black, that's hot, you got to be careful with that thing, but the white, that's the neutral, it's not usually too bad. 
Uh, so you can, you're okay. Uh, yeah. It would have took me, it takes two people to figure out how to shut the power off, by the way, and I was here by myself uh, working on this. I would have had to have somebody way up in here, and I would have said, yep, yep, nope, nope, you know what I mean, like, until I finally found the circus. So I thought it's easier just to hook it up, right? So I'm standing up at the top of the ladder out in the foyer, and, uh, and, <laughs> and anyway, somebody in this circuit going back wherever had reversed the black and the white. You know where this is going, right? So here I am, uh, and I'm, I'm stripping the white, and my, my hand is touching the metal of, a, of the box while I'm stripping the white, and my thumb's on the edge of the pliers, and I'm thinking it's just the white, so I'm throwing caution to the wind, and it's now the hot, and I'm like, and like for literally about, I don't know, it seemed like an eternity, I'm standing up on that ladder, and, uh, and, and, and uh, Sarah Redka, who was custodian at the time, she can hear me screaming, Right? And, and uh, she, no, she was way down the hall, I think. So she comes running down the hall, and she sees me just as all of a sudden the pliers themselves touch the box. It popped the breaker. And uh, I was, whew. And then I grabbed the pole to hold myself from falling off the ladder. And she came in the room. She goes, sss, sss. <laughs> Pastor, what's that smell? And I said, what? She said, it, it smells like burning hair. It was me. I smelt like burning hair. The electricity had so turned me into a conductor it had singed hair off the back of my hand. I don't recommend this for anybody here. She said, well, we do know this, because she was also a registered nurse. And I said, what's that? She said, well, if you had a problem with a fibrillation or some medical term like that, she said, it's probably fixed now, you know? <laughs> And I was like, well, well, thank you for that, I think. But in that moment, after all the years of studying electricity, I knew electricity in a fresh and real way. It was, it was a personal encounter with electrical current that I wish not to repeat, by the way, just so you know. And uh, I've had other skirmishes with it before, but that one was a real close encounter of the awesome kind. But you know what? God wants us to have that kind of experience with him. Not one where you study it and you read about it, but where you actually experience him. Hello? We need to know him. Not just know about him. We need to know him. We need to know him. <clears throat> now, Paul understood this as well, and there's a lengthy little portion of scripture I want to read here this morning that Paul talks about the same principle about actually knowing him and talks about the futility of just knowing about him, all right? Let's listen to this, Pat. Well, actually, I'll read it to you. I didn't, I didn't put it all in there. I saved myself making up all the slides. So I'm just going to return it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, if you have your Bibles with you. And if you don't, I apologize for not putting up on the screen, all right? But it's simply this. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in wisdom 
in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. See, through their own wisdom, they didn't know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who will believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, this passage of scripture is one of Paul's great conversations. And uh, it is a real simple expose of Paul's understanding of the limitations of human knowledge. And if you still think you can know your way into heaven through man's pursuits of knowledge, I'm here today to take a real sharp pin and pop that balloon. Pop that bubble. You can't read or study your way into heaven. You can't, uh, you know, read all this stuff and acquire all this knowledge about God and think that it will suffice. That's what Paul was telling us in this passage of Scripture. Is there uh, something wrong with that thing up there, Sheldon? Wiggle the connection on it or something? Um, You can't do that. The only real way in which you can come to Christ is by experiencing him, experiencing his love, experiencing his grace, experiencing his goodness. It's an experience that we have to have. You know, Matthew Henry, famous preacher, most of you know him because he wrote a a commentary on the Bible. Must have took him his whole life to do it, right? The thing's like this thick, and he writes on, actually, it's multiple volumes. I've got the condensed versions, only this thick. And the print's like this small, and he comments on every verse of the Bible. So he does historical research, what a commentary is. He's commenting on every verse of the Bible, bringing in history and all kinds of other things to help you understand what you're reading. And he said this. He said, the plain preaching of a crucified Jesus was more powerful than all the oratory and philosophy of the heathen world. In other words, Paul's simple preaching that Jesus died for you so that you could have eternal life, was more powerful than all of the Greek philosophers, and they were around in abundance. Because Jesus was born right after uh, Plato, Socrates, uh, you know, that whole movement toward understanding uh, philosophy and understanding the world through, through thought and through reason. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes into the world, and Paul's standing up, and, and he goes even to the Greeks, and, he, and they've got all these different gods, and they're having all these philosophical debates and all the rest of it, and Paul's able to point to a statue. They even have one of the unknown God and say, I want to tell you about him. His name is Jesus, right? Matthew Henry was absolutely right. 
To those who are perishing, the message of the gospel is foolishness. But us to, to us who are saved, it's the very power of God. Paul said to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. Why? Because the king of Israel was born in a manger and he failed to overthrow the Roman government. How? To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. How could he possibly be the savior? He saved us from nothing. That's the way they were looking at it. To the Gentiles, it was foolishness. How can a man be God and how can his death bring victory? Victory goes to the strong. He couldn't save himself. How can he save others? You see, to both of them, the message that Paul was preaching seemed like foolishness. It was, it was something that they couldn't get past. But if they would allow themselves to open their hearts and to experience God, their lives were changed. And that God, did, he wasn't a, a passive bystander in this process. He was, he was actively involved in creating a, a, a salvation uh, means or way that actually got in the way of the intellectual that got in the way of their natural thinking why did he send his son humble in birth to a manger in poverty why did he send him to a cross the romans way to crucify those whom they hated and wanted to make public spectacle of why did he choose the method that he did? I believe he chose it because right from the beginning he wanted to make sure that the message got in the way of our intellect, that we had to step past our intellect, we had to step past our, our reasoning powers, and we had to approach God by one thing and one th thing alone, and it's called faith. For by grace through what? Faith are you saved and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God so that no one can boast through faith faith levels the playing field so that whether you have a PhD or whether you never graduated from high school you approach God the very same by faith and you are received by the same means faith there's no other way. Faith. Faith. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So that when we go to boast, we have only one thing left to boast about. God. The God who loved me, the God who sent his son to die for me, I've got nothing to boast about except for God. I've experienced him. My brag will be on him. It won't be on me. It won't be on how good a guy I've been. It won't be on how well I've taught or preached or how well I've done this or how well I've done that. It won't even be on how, on how well I have loved my wife and how she is so grateful to be married to me. <laughs> my brag is in the Lord. My boast is in him. Amen? That's where it has to be. That brings us to the final thing I want to ask you today that I've been asking throughout the whole message. Do you know him? Do you know him this morning? We are known as believers. We're known as followers of Jesus Christ. And we are. But we're so much more. We're sons. We're daughters. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're family members within God's divine household. That's who we are. One more Lewis quote, because it wouldn't be a real good morning without at least a trifecta. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from him is that he said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Isn't that great? 
The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. We've been grafted in. Everybody say grafted in. Everybody say adopted. Everybody say joined to. Everybody say made heirs of this incredible family. That's what's happened to us because of Jesus Christ. Jesus became a man so that we could be all of those things. We are sons. We're not illegitimate children. We are adopted and grafted into the family of God with all the rights and privileges that exist in family. We're family members. We're family members. And how do we become this family? We're family not because we know the family, but because we're part of the family. We're family not because we know about the Father, or we, but we're family because we have been adopted by the Father, right? We're family not because we know about our brother Jesus. We're family because he is our brother Jesus. Are you hearing me this morning? We're family. We're not outsiders looking in. We're on the inside, positioned right in there with Jesus. I love how... Uh, wrote the, the uh, called the rain book. Leif Hetland says it. He says, we are with God sitting around his living room, uh, you know, with him kind of leaning back, planning the takeover of the world. Pinky and the brain stuff, right? I have a box on my desk. It looks like an old book. And it says on top of it, it says, plans for taking over the world if I'm not too tired. And then underneath the author's name is Yanni Nodzoff. <laughs> but the reality is, is that we have been grafted into this family and we're part of the family empire, right? We're part of the family empire. That's who we are. Mark, can you go to my computer bag in there? And there's a thick hardcover book in the center of it. Can you bring that out to me, please? I just want to read something to everybody out of that. Um, you know, we often miss that point about who we are. And this morning, there's an illustration I came to across this book, and I wasn't going to read it, but since I'm doing really good for time, i got five minutes left, I'm going to take the time to read this to you this morning. And, uh, and it's a conversational uh, experience that explains the understanding of who we are. <clears throat> the pastor is dressed uh, in a comfortable pair of old blue jeans when he boarded the plane to return home. And he settled into the last unoccupied seat next to a well-dressed businessman with a Wall Street Journal tucked under his arm. The minister, a little embarrassed over his casual attire, decided that he'd look straight ahead and uh, for sure stay out of any in-depth conversation. Anybody ever have that experience when you're on the plane? And just, I'm just so tired. Just, you know, I just, Lord, today, just today, I just, just want to zone out, right? But the plan didn't work. The man greeted him so to be polite, the pastor asked him about the man's work. And here's what happened. The man said, I'm in the figure salon business. We change a woman's self-concept by changing her body. It's really a very profound, powerful thing. His pride spoke between the lines. You look my age, I said. Have you been at this long? Well, I just graduated from the University of Michigan School of Business Admin, and they've given me... So much responsibility already, and I feel very honored. In fact, I hope to eventually manage the western part of the operation. So you're a national organization, I asked, <clears throat> and becoming impressed despite myself. 
Oh, yes, he said, we're the fastest growing company of our kind in the nation. It's really good to be part of an organization like that, don't you think? I nodded approvingly and thought, hmm, impressive. Proud of his work and his accomplishments. Why can't Christians be proud like that? Why are we so often apologetic about our faith and our church? Looking at my clothing, he asked the inevitable question, and what do you do? And so I said, it's interesting that we have similar business interests. You're in the body-changing business. I'm in the personality-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. <laughs> he was hooked, but I knew he would never admit it. Pride is a powerful thing. He said, well, you know, I've heard about that, he replied hesitantly, but do you have an office here in the city? Oh, we have many offices. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We have at least one office in every state of the union, including Alaska and Hawaii. He had this puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company that he must have read or heard about, perhaps in the Wall Street Journal. As a matter of fact, I said, we've gone international, and management has a plan to put at least one office in every country of the world by the end of the business era. <laughs> Do you have that in your business, I asked? <laughs> well, no, not yet, he answered, but you mentioned management. How do they make it work? And I said, well, it's a family concern. There's a father and a son, and they run everything. Wow, it must take a lot of capital, he said skeptically. Oh, you mean money? Yeah, I suppose so, but no one ever knows just how much it takes, but we never worry because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy, you know, and the money is, well, just there. In fact, those of us in the organization have a saying about our boss. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, he's into ranching too? No, no, it's just a, a saying we use to indicate his wealth. My friend sat back in his seat, thinking about the conversation. Well, what about with you, he asked. Well, me, the employees? He said, well, <laughs> there's something to see, I said. Uh, they have a spirit that pervades the organization. It works like this. The father and the son love each other so much that their love filters down through the organization so that we all find ourselves loving one another, too. I know this sounds old-fashioned in a world like ours, but I know people in the organization who are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? <laughs> I was almost shouting now, and people were starting to shift noticeably in their seats. Well, not yet, he said, quickly changing strategies. He asked, uh, have you got good benefits? <laughs> they are very substantial, I, I countered. I, complete, I have complete life insurance, fire insurance, all the basics. You might not believe this, but it's true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now for my retirement. Do you have that in your business? <laughs> not yet, he answered. Uh, <clears throat> but maybe the light was starting to come on. You know, one thing bothers me about all that you're saying. I've read the journals, and if your business is all that you say it is, why haven't I heard about it before now? That's a good question, I said. After all, we have a 2,000-year-old tradition. Wait a minute, he said. You're right. I said, I'm talking about the church. I knew it. You know, he said, I'm Jewish. And I looked at him and said, you want to sign up? 
Are you getting the point this morning? It's not enough to have read about him. It's not enough to simply read about him or have talked about him or had conversations about him. You have to know him. Church, we have to know him. We have to know him. Do you know him this morning? Are you part of his family this morning? Do you know him? I don't mean, you know, you know somebody who knows him. Or you've heard about him. Or, you know, well, I'm here today. Doesn't that count for anything? Actually, no. Do you know him? We're glad that you're here. But just being here doesn't mean that you know him. There's not an equal sign between the two. You have to experience him. You have to give your life to him. And as the guy said on the airplane, the pastor, it's great. The benefits are literally out of this world. There is so much that God has to show you. There was a, an eye surgeon, and he uh, was a Christian, and he would remove uh, cataracts and stuff from people's eyes, and then he'd bring them back in and test them a couple weeks after the surgery so that he could see what kind of progress they're making, and he'd replace the eye chart on his wall from the standard letters and stuff like that, uh, and he had replaced it with you know, letters in the various sizes, how they go from large down to small, and he had replaced it with, God loves you and has a great plan for your life. And now that you can see, what do you see that it is? And so they would, you know, come back in. They'd open their eyes. They'd look at this eye chart with fresh vision, fresh ability to see that this surgeon has given them. And they would look up and they would see, God has a great plan for your life. And now that you can see, can you see what it is? pretty clever and they'd read it out and then he'd say do you see what it is do you know what it is that's a creative surgeon right there and he got to tell all of his patients about Jesus and invite them into this great journey of knowing him amen stand with me together this morning I'm able to say this morning that I know God the same way I know electricity. Not because I read about him, but because I experienced him. And you know, the, the, the day that I gave my life to Christ, I, I felt kind of the same thing. Some people feel nothing. Other people feel stuff. I, uh, the day that I gave my life to Christ, I had suffered from scoliosis. I had curvature of my spine, which was brought on by an accident I had when I was 13. I got hit by a car won't bore you with all the details, but the night that I gave my life to Christ, I, I simply gave my life to him because I wanted to deal with all the, the hate and the hurt that was in my life, and he healed my back at the same time. I got like the package deal, and my back was instantly healed. I used to walk like this because my, my back was out of alignment. I don't walk like that anymore. I don't belong to the school of silly walks anymore. And God is good. I don't know what the experience is like for everybody, but I can tell you that from that day forward, I, I encountered God. I, I knew Jesus. I didn't know. In fact, I knew very little about him, but I knew him. And it, it drove me to want to know this God who I had experienced and whose love had just come over me in such a powerful way. I wanted to know more about him. And so it drove me to reading the Bible. 
I, I read the Bible to uncover information about the God who I already knew and had encountered. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Maybe your journey was the same. Maybe your journey was the same. For my buddy Lewis, it was the opposite way. He, he set out to disprove God. And he read all kinds of stuff about God, filled his head with all kinds of information, read the Bible and all the rest of it so he could actually, you know, write God off the, uh, the, the map and ended up having to admit that he was God and then had his encounter with God. It doesn't matter how we come to him, but we have to experience him. We have to know his love personally. We have to uh, start a relationship with him. And that's what he's inviting you to today. It's to a relationship. It's not about joining a religion. It's not about joining a, a group. We're not a cult. Just, you know, we're just another body of Christ, many in the city, who are offering to people the hope in Jesus Christ. But the hope isn't yours until you take hold of it. The Bible calls our walk with Christ a gift. Accepted by faith. What's faith? Faith is that trust. It is that belief that what I've heard today is true. And as the Aussies say, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to take that leap. I'm going to reach out and start this walk with him. That's what he's called every one of us to. And I want everybody just to kind of close your eyes here this morning and examine your own life. But if you're here this morning and you say, I don't know Jesus like that, but I'd like to know Jesus like that. I'd, I'd like to know him. I'd like to be able to talk to God and and, and, and possibly even hear from God, but certainly to know that he hears me and to have this relationship with him, that's me. I, I, I would like that. Just lift your hand. I'd love to pray with you this morning. I'd love to just agree with you to experience that today. Just lift your hand and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to start that journey. Yes, I see a hand. Anybody else this morning? Don't be shy. Just hold it up. I'd like to pray with you this morning. Yes. Well, Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that, God, you still call men and women to yourself. And, Father, you are the Savior of the world. You've given your life for us. It's a free gift, the Bible says. All we have to do is reach out and take it. And, Father, today, in Jesus' name, that uh, we would understand that it isn't about what we know. It's about who we know. That's the message. And we can, anybody in this room can share your faith with somebody else. It doesn't matter if you know the Bible from cover to cover. If you've experienced them, share your experience. If he's answered your prayers, share the answers. If he's, if he's showed you his love, then show that love to others. It's that simple. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of that today. And we ask for your grace on every life in Jesus' name. Amen. If you... If you're here this morning and, uh, you know, you would like prayer, um, you would like to receive uh, this morning, we'd like to pray for you. Um, God bless you and have an amazing day today.